Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome, and I should say this in advance, uh, I don't speak Swedish, and so I'm going to do my best, and I will invite our guest to correct me later, but thrilled to welcome Eric Huebeck, no, Huebeck, to the show. Eric is Associate Professor of History in the Department of History and Contemporary Studies at Södertörn University in Sweden, and he's written a fascinating new book titled The Making of the Greek Genocide, Contested Memories of the Ottoman Greek Catastrophe. In it, he focuses on the way memory of the mass violence against Greeks in Anatolia in and around the First World War emerged, evolved, and was challenged. I was struck by this book from the moment I saw it on Burkhan's list. Uh, most of the time when I see books uh, in this field of memory study, they tend to focus on relatively well-known cases. Uh, this is different. Many people will not know the events that Eric talks about. Um, others will know them, but only kind of broadly in the context of the much more widely publicized, anyway, Armenian genocide. Um, and, and, and Eric's decision to focus on this really offers them a a chance to shed new light on the ways in which local, regional, and transnational politics intersect and intertwine to shape public discourse and memory. His analysis is deeply researched, methodologically sophisticated, precise in argument and tone, and it's really a fabulous book, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with him. So with that, Eric, welcome. Thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. Nice evaluation of the book. Thank you. It's a great book. And and like I said, it, I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Before we get to the book, uh, I always start by asking people uh, just to say a little bit about yourselves. Uh, who are you and, 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 and how did you end up being a historian? All right. Well, that's a soul-searching question I have always <laughs> often asked myself, <laughs> why am I doing this? How did I end up here? Uh, So, I have always been interested in history or the past ever since I was a little kid. Uh, I have studied a number of subjects uh, uh, while I was at the university as a student. Uh, Several languages, the classics, uh, and history, of course. Uh, What brought me to... uh, uh, the field that I am currently in, uh, which is the field of, well, memory studies and historical culture with a particular focus on modern Greece. It actually started out with my interest in the classics. That brought me to Greece, and then I made the switch from ancient Greek to modern Greek, starting Uh, taking classes in the modern Greek language while simultaneously being a freshman student of history at Lund University. And eventually those two passions uh, 
converged when I decided to write my master's thesis uh, about an intriguing subject that later evolved into my uh, doctoral thesis, which was about the Macedonian conflict between Greece and what is nowadays known as the Republic of Northern Macedonia. And you you describe yourself as somebody who is in memory studies. For, for people who are not familiar with that, what is memory studies and why is it so important? Well, we historians sometimes tend to forget that we are not writing our studies solely for our colleagues. There are a bunch of people out there to which the history that we are writing about matters. Uh, you can build political arguments using history. Uh, so what intrigued me when I chose my specialization in history, it is this how people who are not necessarily trained historians, how do they deal with the past? What in the past do they found meaningful in their lives? How do they use the past to advance political arguments, to build their identities, and so forth? So this is where memory comes in, which is really the study of how individuals, communities, and entire societies master the past, deal with the past, use the past in order to make sense of the present in which they live. This is a fascinating subject. So why this book? Why this book about the making of the Greek genocide? Why spend four, I, I'm going to guess, four or five or six years of your life on this topic? Actually, three years. <laughs> oh, you're a better writer than I am then. Go ahead. <laughs> Didn't mean to show off, but that was actually <laughs> the case. First of all, I have always been interested, well, always or always, it's perhaps a lie, mm. but uh, ever since I started to know modern Greek history, uh, I have been fascinated by the Asia Minor catastrophe, which is a ma major event uh, in modern Greek history. Uh, that is the catastrophe that concluded the Greco-Turkish War and led to uh, the expulsion of over a million former Ottoman Greeks uh, to Greece, which had a huge impact on modern Greek society. Uh, and later history. I don't quite remember how, when I first encountered this notion that this was to be understood as a genocide. Uh, but one thing that intrigued me about this was that how come I find no reference to this supposed genocide in the standard history textbooks about mm. Greece? Uh, I didn't think that much about it until I was working with my um, uh, doctoral thesis about the Macedonian conflicts uh, when I was reading all these press coverage from the 1990s, Greek press uh, covering this uh, Macedonian conflict. And while reading these microfilms, I also encountered this community called the Pontian Greeks, who were very active at the time, trying to get recognition, political recognition 
for this event they called the Pontian Greek Genocide. Uh, that actually became a, a chapter of the uh, dissertation because I could mm-hmm. see connection between this Macedonian controversy and this simultaneous process of genocide recognition. And while I was working on this subject, the national parliament in my own country, Sweden, uh, decided to recognize the genocide of the Armenians, and not only the Armenians, but also the Assyrians and the Pontian Greeks Mm. as a historical Mm. fact. And it intrigued me that although Sweden had sort of acknowledged the Pontian genocide uh, as a historical fact, nobody seemed to know who these Pontian Greeks were (laughs) or where this fact had come from. Uh, And it turned out that no one had really studied this campaign for genocide recognition in depth. We had a political recognition of a fact that nobody seemed to know anything about. So I decided that this will be my new project once I finish the dissertation. So I've admired quietly while you've been talking the care and tact with which you've chosen your words as you describe those events. Uh, and and, and oh, that essentially is at the heart of your book. But before we get there, can you say a little bit more about the expulsion and the process that led up to it? Just, just so that all of the listeners kind of have some sense of the event that you're talking about. Um, what happened? Who, who, who was expelled and why and how? All right. Well, this is a vast topic, really, (laughs) Uh, which starts with the long process of the Ottoman Empire's dissolution, really starting from the encounter of the Ottoman world with European modernity in the 19th century, which brought about this need for reform and adaptation. Uh, on the part of the Ottoman sultans. Uh, A part of this process was trying to better integrate the the Christian subjects of the empire. First, it was an issue about imposing similar duties, meaning that every citizen of the empire should, or subject of the empire should contribute to defending the empire, but this brought about the issue of equal rights for everyone in the empire. So this fueled uh, a movement uh, of Armenian Ottoman citizens who sort of insisted on equal rights within the Ottoman Empire. Uh, There was also a substantial Greek Orthodox population uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, A part of that population has had already seceded from the Ottoman Empire, uh, forming uh, a new nation state, which is the nation state of Greece. So the Ottoman Greeks uh, really had two options uh, in the 19th century. It was either to work for national liberation, becoming part of this new Greek nation state, Uh, which had a clear agenda of irredentism. They wanted to resurrect the old Byzantine Empire and 
conquer more land from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but there was also a substantial part of the Ottoman Greek elite Uh, who didn't wish to become part of the Greek nation-state, but rather tried to find a compromise with the ruling Ottoman Turks and be recognized as, as equals uh, within the empire. Unfortunately, the Greek population or the Ottoman Greek population became the hostage of this great idea Uh, of the idea of a greater Greece that meant that the ruling uh, Ottoman Turks or the Muslim elites tended to um, view these Christian minorities, uh, the Ottoman Greeks and of course the Armenians as potential traitors uh, that had set out to uh, secede from the empire. Uh, this is really a long story, but it sort of merges with the history of the First World War, uh, in which the Ottoman Empire took part uh, on the side of the Central Powers, uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary. First World War in this region of the world is really something that we should call the long First World War stretching from or spanning the entire decade from 1912 to 1922. It's really a series of wars that sort of got sucked into the Great War, uh, in which the nation-state of Greece, along with Serbia and Bulgaria, each sought to accomplish the idea of building their own empires. Uh, on the ruins of the Ottoman Empire. And then we have, of course, the ruling young Turks uh, in the Ottoman Empire who sought to stem this tide, um, which they feared would lead to the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, that is why they joined Germany in the Great War. Uh, this is the general background to the far better known Armenian genocide. Uh, which I think listeners of this podcast might be generally acquainted to. Uh, so what happened in 1915 was that the ruling Young Turks, a party called the Committee of Union and Progress, uh, initiated a program of deportation of the Ottoman Armenians uh, from the supposedly from the areas that were threatened by the invading Russians, but really these deportations took place all over the empire. Uh, this program ended up in the actual annihilation uh, of the large part of the Ottoman Armenian minority. Uh, so it's it has really become known as one of the first great genocides in the history of the 20th century, a sort of precursor to the Holocaust and what came after. What has always been less known, a less known side of this story is uh, the role of that the Ottoman Greeks played in this. Uh, we should keep in mind that the, for the young Turks, the Ottoman Greeks were not vastly preferable to the Ottoman Armenians. 
both of these groups were m- minorities that they wanted to get rid of in one way or another to sort of remove these alleged threats to the cohesion of the empire. But generally, the persecutions of the Ottoman Greeks in the empire has not been interpreted in terms of genocide. Uh, There are certain similarities between the Greek and the Armenian cases during the World War, but there are also important differences. Uh, An important difference had to do with diplomacy. Uh, There was a Greek nation-state that the young Turks could not ignore. Uh, This meant that they sort of refrained from actions that would provoke the neutral state of Greece, uh, which they feared would join uh, the Entente if there was an all-out massacre of the Ottoman Greeks. So this connection to to the nation of Greece sort of, for a while, protected uh, the Ottoman Greeks. Uh, the Germans uh, exerted pressure on the uh, on their young Turkish allies not to provoke the Greeks. Eventually, Greece joined the Entente towards the end of the First World War in 1917, which sort of changed the preconditions for young Turkish polities towards its Ottoman Greeks subjects. Uh, However, the Ottoman Empire uh, surrendered along with Germany in 1918, Uh, so the persecutions were sort of put on hold. Uh, They were later reignited uh, because of the Greco-Turkish War that eventually ensued, uh, which had to do with Greece's territorial ambitions in the Ottoman Empire. The leading Greek uh, statesman of the time, Eleftherios Venizelos, uh, had committed his country to the Entente cause, uh, hoping that Greece would be rewarded after the war uh, with uh, significant territorial gains uh, at the expense of the Ottoman Empire. These Greek territorial claims, which eventually led to a Greek military occupation of Western Asia Minor, sort of reignited the the young Turkish nationalist government or movement uh, at this time led by Mustafa Kemal, later known as Kemal Atatürk. Uh, Eventually, this war between Greece and the Kemalists, uh, which is in uh, Turkey now commemorated as the war for national independence. Uh, It led to a military disaster when the Greeks were beaten in the summer of 1922, which also led to a, um, a humanitarian disaster as the Greek forces withdrew in disarray and the Ottoman Greek civilian population uh, had to flee uh, from from the advancing Kemalist forces. 
This is the event that has usually been remembered as the Asian Minor Catastrophe. Uh, it concluded in 1923 with the peace treaty between Greece and the new Republic of Turkey, in which both, both sides agreed to what they euphemistically called uh, an exchange of populations, that is ethnic cleansing, uh, meaning that um, the Greek Orthodox Ottomans uh, of Anatolia, with the exception of the Greek community of Istanbul, uh, were compelled to leave Turkey. Uh, and on the other side of the Aegean, the Muslim minority of Greece, with a few exemptions, uh, were forced to leave for Turkey. Uh, so this is really the the backstory uh, of these events. Uh, usually, historians have um, studied these two cases, the Armenian uh, deportations and the genocide, and the Greek deportations as, well, really two separate events that were not interconnected with each other. Uh, they have been studied in national isolation, so to say. Uh, which is the reason why there is not really a vast body of literature uh, which sets this Greek catastrophe in the context of uh, Ottoman policies towards the minorities during the First World War. Well, that was a long story. Well... Admirably summarized, and, and I should say that the chapter in your book that that kind of covers that is is uh, is wonderfully written, and I learned a lot from it. Uh, but most of your book is about the memory, so we've got that established. You suggest in the book, and I have to say, I was surprised to discover how long the memory of these events mostly lay unaddressed or dormant, or I'm not sure what the word is, but how does it last? How does it take so long for people within Greece to highlight these events and try and bring them to a national stage? Well, this is perhaps the most important question that one has to address. Not really whether it was a genocide or not, you can make that argument, but what intrigued me. The more is, why was this not remembered as what we call a genocide, uh, using the vocabulary of Raphael Lemkin? Why did it take so long for this collective memory to form, so to say? Uh, and why did it this interpretation of it as genocide emerge at all? Uh, these are the questions that, well, the book is really about, uh, I would say. Uh, there are a number of reasons for the relative silence uh, in the history of Greece uh, during the 20th century. Uh, first of all, we have the uh, issue of Greek-Turkish relations 
post the low sound treaty uh, of course there was initially uh, a great sense of bitterness and vindictiveness uh, in Greece uh, after this catastrophe eventually this statesman Venizelos whom I mentioned before the the one who had actually been the great architect of the Greek intervention in uh, into World War One and later into Asia Minor. Uh, he eventually came round to the conclusion that there is no point in feeding this enmity with Turkey anymore. So he decided to reach out to Kemal Atatürk uh, and suggest a pact between the two republics, Greece and Turkey. Uh, it was really a defensive pact against Bulgaria and uh, eventually against Mussolini's Italy, uh, a country that both Greece and Turkey felt intimidated by. So there were political reasons for burying the hatchet and sort of pretending that these awful events of 1922 didn't really happen or were not that important. So at an official level, there was a kind of Greco-Turkish friendship in the 1930s that later evolved into the NATO alliance uh, in which Greece and Turkey still in this day remains uneasy partners. Uh, I wouldn't say that this was a cordial friendship between the two countries, but it sort of worked against uh, the process of reckoning or coming to terms with what had happened. The refugees were basically left to sort things out for themselves uh, in terms of trauma. Uh, there was no official interest in uh, pursuing uh, matters of uh, reimbursement, uh, restitution, justice, etc. Uh, Greece gave up all claims uh, for uh, reparations after the war uh, or after the, the pact uh, with Ankara in 1930. Uh, so there was no official interest in this history uh, at all. Uh, another important factor uh, when it comes to the history of collective trauma uh, is that the refugees that had come to Greece in the early 1920s, they were mostly preoccupied with trying to survive in their new country, trying to get jobs, trying to get the issue of housing solved. Uh, there was a focus on the here and now and building a future in the new country. So in this context, there wasn't really an incentive to address this history of violence because there was no encouragement uh, to do so. This didn't mean that the refugees were living in some kind of amnesia. They were very interested in um, collecting oral stories about their past, studying the history of the so-called lost homelands, uh, 
there are places of origins. Uh, in the 1930s and onwards, we see this <laughs> explosion, so to say, of uh, various refugee associations and learned societies uh, dedicated to the task of preserving communal memory uh, of the Anatolian places of origins. This memory work did not really address the immediate reasons for why they had ended up in Greece, uh, namely the the history of mass violence. Uh, eventually, uh, these things changed uh, during the course of the 20th century. Uh, I forgot to mention uh, also the, uh, the issue of... Uh, renewed traumas or new traumas that came in the 1940s, first with the Axis occupation of Greece, uh, and then immediately after that, the the civil war between the communist rebels and the the, um, nationalist government that was backed by Harry Truman and, and the British, first by the British and then by the U.S., uh, a civil war is always a great trauma, and this the events of the 1940s tended to overshadow the earlier catastrophe uh, of the early 1920s, uh, which meant that in the 1970s, when the military dictatorship of the colonels, the colonels, uh, between 1967 and 1974, uh, when that dictatorship fell and democracy was restored in Greece, that meant that public discussions about the recent past tended to be about the experience of the 1940s rather than the earlier Ottoman Greek catastrophe. Uh, However, the reason why the military regime had fallen was that it had sort of provoked Turkey into invading Cyprus in 1974 and then proved utterly incompetent and inadequate to face up to this threat. Uh, This is the reason why the regime fell. It had lost all credibility. But that also meant that the Cyprus conflict with Turkey had brought an end to this official friendship with Turkey. Uh, We have a much more belligerent climate in Greco-Turkish relations that lasted through the uh, late 1970s, the 1980s, and the 1990s, which sort of created a climate uh, in which it was sort of natural to address this earlier history of what the wicked Turks had done to the Greeks before. So it is in this climate, in the 1970s, and especially in the 1980s, uh, that this story of the genocide uh, of what was first called the Pontian Greeks, later the Anatolian Greeks, evolved. So you've used the word trauma several times. Maybe we should pause, because this is an important concept in your book. Can you say a little bit about trauma in, in this term you borrow from, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name, um, of trauma drama. Can you say a little bit about those ideas? Yes. So I work with uh, the notion of cultural trauma, 
that was coined by a sociologist, uh, Jeffrey Alexander, uh, and his colleagues, a concept that he has sort of discussed in several works. Uh, what I find useful about this uh, notion of cultural trauma, uh, it is that it is um, an argument against this common conceptions that we usually have about trauma. That is something that inherently exists uh, within us. We tend to take for granted the memory of catastrophic events will sort of imprint itself uh, upon people and will be transmitted over generations uh, to come. This is sort of the, the usual approach to trauma. Uh, Jeffrey C. Alexander, on the other hand, he argues that, well, we should make a distinction between individual trauma and collective trauma. An individual trauma is, well, this is the, the notion of trauma that is most familiar to us. Something horrible that happens to you that you involuntarily remembers for the rest of your life. Something that comes back to you in flashbacks when you least expect it or something triggers it. Uh, this is the sort of first-hand experience of trauma. Uh, however, collective trauma, which Alexander defines or sort of defines as cultural trauma, uh, it is something different. Uh, it, is, it has to do with learned, learned experience rather than lived experience. Uh, Alexander argues that collective traumas don't exist in and of themselves. Rather than being found, they are made in response to various individual, political, cultural needs, which often change over time, which means that it is important to ask why and under which circumstances such cultural traumas emerge or fail to emerge. The example that Alexander has discussed extensively, uh, it is the story of how the notion of the Holocaust came into being. Immediately after the Second World War, people were generally aware of the concentration camps and so forth. They were aware of the events, but according to Alexander's argument, uh, it was not yet a cultural trauma. It was trauma. It was a trauma for the Holocaust survivors who went through it, but not necessarily for the general public or societies which had which had no immediate connection to to that history of atrocities. The memory of the Holocaust, or what we today recognize as the Holocaust, which we tend to think of as one of the most significant collective collective memories there is with profound lessons for our contemporary society. That sort of memory or cultural trauma was something that evolved from the 1960s and onwards. I found that distinction between lived experience and learned experience, something that you have been taught uh, useful when, when researching this case of the uh, Ottoman Greek catastrophe that later evolved into some kind of collective memory of the, the Greek genocide. The activists uh, that are trying to explain why no one has cared about 
these events, they usually take for granted that this is an event of such profound significance that there ought to have been a great narrative, a great collective trauma that should have been uh, at the center of national attention right from the beginning. And when they don't find this trauma, when reading, well, the debate from the 1930s or 1950s, and are struck by this absence of public discussions about this past, they sort of assume that there has to be, have been some malicious or malevolent force that sort of covered up the truth about this event. Uh, to a certain extent, censorship did play a role in what we could call the silencing of this history. But one might as well ask yourself, why should they remember it if, <laughs> if there was no incentive to remember it the way that present-day activists would have wanted it to be remembered? So that's a really fascinating concept, Eric, and, and, and you use it really well in the book. The memory um, emerges. Well, that's not a right word because that, that makes it sound somehow like there's no agency. And there is agency. Um, so how is it, as much as you can say in some relatively compressed amount of time, how is it that this memory uh, becomes important or is made important um, in, a, in a national framework? You title the chapter on this nationalizing genocide. Why is it nationalizing that's the important adjective? And how is it, this is what I found really fascinating, how is it that once the Greek uh, government officially recognizes a day of national remembrance, how is it that that brings about a backlash? That I found really surprising. So I know that's a question that you could go on for an hour and, and we don't have an hour, but um, but what is it important about this chapter that you want to draw people's attention to? How, how, how do you get to this point where it becomes an issue and it becomes a controversial issue. Well, this is, well, quite a complex uh, history. One would naturally assume that this memory of what befell the Ottoman Greeks would kind of work as a naturally, naturally cohesive memory, something that would unite the Greek nation. We have a collective memory of something awful that happened. These these activists are sort of very inspired by the Armenian uh, campaign for genocide recognition. And when you look at the, the memory of 1915 in the formation of modern Armenian identity, uh, national identity or ethnic identity, it is really a cornerstone uh, of Armenian identity, something that everyone can agree can agree on that this is something that unites us all. This is not really the case in Greece, not not at all. It has to do with <laughs> a number of things, really. Uh, first of all, the the climate in which this 
notion of the Pontian Greek genocide evolved in the 1980s, uh, we need to understand that this was a period when Greece got its first socialist government, uh, the government of PASOK, led by Andreas Papandreou, which brought about a sort of reckoning with the old nationalist narrative. Uh, I wouldn't say that PASOK were anti-nationalists, not at all, but their their nationalism was a kind of left-wing nationalism. Uh, in this climate, the Pontian genocide uh, narrative evolved. Uh, a lot of these Pontian activists and Pontians are the descendants of refugees that came from a region by the Black Sea that's called Pontos in Greek. Pontos meaning the Black Sea, Pontos Evxinos in Greek. Uh, they have always been a sort of peculiar <laughs> community within the larger refugee community. And this notion of a genocide uh, became the cornerstone of their ethnic identity that kind of evolved outside the confines of national identity in Greece. So there was a controversy among Pontian intellectuals themselves regarding the wisdom of promoting a narrative that stressed a Pontian identity that is separate from the national Greek identity. And this led to the argument that if we really want this idea of the Pontian genocide to have any traction, we need to convince the rest of the Greek public that this is a matter of national importance and not just only uh, something that has to do with our own very narrow community. The governing PASOK was initially very receptive towards these demands for genocide recognition. The Pontian Greeks were and are an important constituency in Greece. Uh, this is a community that you would like to befriend if you are a politician seeking re-election. So that is the reason why uh, the Greek parliament uh, recognized the event as the Pontian Genocide. Uh, the problem really started in the 1990s uh, when this campaign uh, for genocide recognition kind of overlapped with the general nationalist frenzy uh, concerning the Macedonian name conflict, which was not only a conflict with a sort of rival nationalist movement, uh, in northern Macedonia, it was actually a hugely divisive issue within Greece itself because nationalist politicians used this sort of perceived threat uh, from an external foe to sort of cast blame on the uh, political left in Greece, which they argued had thrown away patriotic values, uh, which had only served to reinforce the agenda of Greece's enemies. Uh, and eventually the story of uh, Pontian Greek genocide recognition was caught up uh, in this debate because Greek right-wing nationalists saw this uh, Pontian Greek genocide narrative as an opportunity to castigate their left-wing foes. The Greek left has a very long and complicated uh, relation to this 
Asia Minor catastrophe. Uh, initially, the Greek communists were the only ones who did not support the Greek intervention into Asia Minor. Uh, and especially after the Greek Civil War, uh, when the Greek Communist Party was illegalized, uh, and you could not openly address the history of the, of the Greek Civil War in public, uh, a lot of left-wing intellectuals uh, then turned their interest towards the Greek Asia Minor catastrophe, which they saw as a parallel to the history of the Greek Civil War. Here was a disastrous campaign initiated by Greek nationalist politicians of the right uh, who, uh, who uh, encouraged by the Western powers had led the Greek people towards a national disaster by provoking the Turks uh, to uh, take vengeance upon the Ottoman Greeks. Uh, so this led to the Asia Minor catastrophe being remembered in left-wing historiography that was very dominant uh, until recent times, in which the Asia Minor catastrophe was remembered as a kind of morality play about the vices of Greek right-wing nationalism. And this morality play did not sit well with an interpretation of these events as a genocide committed by the young Turks uh, against uh, innocent Ottoman Greeks. So there was huge opposition from left-wing intellectuals who sort of sensed that this sudden emphasis on Greek genocide recognition was really about, not about restoring a sense of historical justice towards the Ottoman Greek victims, but really a sort of attempt to rehabilitate the discredited Greek right-wing nationalism. So the story of the Greek genocide became a battlefield uh, in the ongoing culture wars uh, in Greece that have been raging from the 1990s uh, and until this day. So that is the reason why this has not been a generally accepted trauma narrative. So you draw, I don't know if it's a distinction, but it used, at least you put them on a continuum, this idea of, a, of, of national memory and cosmopolitanization of memory. So what do you mean when you talk about cosmopolitanization of memory and how does that play out in this um, or narrative or discussion? Well, so I use this notion of cosmopolitan memory that I have borrowed from two other sociologists, uh, Nathan Snyder and Daniel Levy, uh, which has discussed uh, the Holocaust as a new cosmopolitan memory for at least the Western world, where it has been become important for various nation states today uh, to sort of write their national history into this overarching narrative, uh, which emphasizes cosmopolitan values, that the Holocaust was a crime against, not just as a, against a particular group of people, the Jews, but really an attack on cosmopolitanism itself. 
cosmopolitan values being multiculturalism, tolerance for the other, and so forth. So this is the reason why Holocaust remembrance has become so important in the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, how does all of this relate to Greece, really? Uh, well, I found it fruitful to use this concept of cosmopolitan memory together with Alexander's notion of cultural trauma, uh, in the sense that critics of this genocide narrative tend to treat it as an exp- a mere expression of Greek reactionary nationalism, which has nothing to do with the cosmopolitan values of contemporary society. However, they sort of miss an important point, and that is that these activists, even if it is true that they often have very narrow, a very narrow, narrow understanding of, of history and tend to view history as the history of the nation rather than history of mankind. But when they use the concept of genocide and the concept of human rights violation, they are sort of, whether they know it or not, writing themselves into this larger narrative or conceptualization of their national past as a cosmopolitan story. What is important for these activists is not only national recognition or recognition on a national level by the Greek parliament, for example, they really want what the Armenians want, and that is international recognition to get this story out there, to get it recognized as belonging to the canon of of genocides that everyone should be aware of. So that means that they are not only nationalizing the story uh, of their ancestors' suffering, uh, they are actually trying to cosmopolitanize their story uh, by making it matter or making it appeal to foreign audiences. And this is what I found most compelling about uh, this story. Because that means that these activists, even if they sort of come from nationalist convictions, they are sort of forced to address larger issues where they are forced to realize that their particular Greek case is not unique, that it it needs to be understood uh, in the context of other great human tragedies around the world. So the story of the Pontian Greek nationalist, uh, the, the Pontian Greek genocide is sort of both a nationalist project and sort of accidentally by accident uh, an attempt to cosmopolitanize the national past. Mm. Yeah, you, you deal with this at least in a couple different chapters. I'm I'm wondering what for, for listeners of this podcast, it might be useful for you to say just a little bit about the debate within the International Association of Genocide Scholars about the status of the uh, how did you phrase it? The Anatolian catastrophe or the Greek catastrophe. Or the, the the word you use more effectively than I just did. How did this debate 
play out in the IAGS? Well, this is a fascinating story. Uh, so the, uh, the story of the Pontian genocide, I sort of follow how how it moves between different national contexts. Uh, the Greek national debate is a very important part of the book. Uh, but I also try to see what happens to it in an international context, uh, especially um, uh, American activists of a Greek descent uh, has been very instrumental in promoting this notion of the Greek genocide at an international level. Uh, and a very important part of that was bringing it to the International Association of Genocide Scholars and trying to get a sort of international scholarly validation of their claim. The way that they did this was by taking advantage of the democratic procedures of that international, of that organization, uh, which means that uh, a couple of activists sort of, well, uh, they wrote a resolution uh, where they demanded that this story of the Pontian Greeks, which has been sadly overlooked, should really be understood within the context of the Armenian genocide, meaning that the victims of the genocide uh, of 1915 were not only Armenians, uh, but also uh, Assyrians and Pontian and Anatolian Greeks. Uh, it was framed part as a call for historical justice to acknowledge uh, the victims of the young Turkish policies that had not really made it to international attention. But it was also kind of framed as an accusation against Armenian genocide scholarship for not paying sufficient attention to the tragedies of, well, one could call twin tragedies of the Ottoman Greeks and the Ottoman Assyrians. Uh, it is sort of a parallel to the debates uh, regarding whether you should include the, the Roma uh, into the Holocaust or not. Uh, uh, so they brought this resolution to the uh, public meeting of the International Association of Genocide Scholars in 2007. Uh, and eventually they arranged some kind of plebiscite in which the members of the organization could vote uh, to decide whether this should be recognized as a genocide on a par with the Armenian genocide or not. Uh, there was quite a fierce opposition from some scholars associated with um, Armenian genocide scholarship who said, stop, wait. This is really an understudied story. Maybe we should study this history of the Ottoman Greek tragedy before we recognize it as a genocide, as a fact. And the, uh, the uh, 
Greek genocide activists were very upset uh, that there was this opposition, which they tended to interpret as this is this is akin to Turkish denialism of the entire genocide, and they should really be ashamed of themselves for sort of perpetuating this hierarchy of victims. Uh, the matter was sort of was supposedly settled by this plebiscite in which members were invited to uh, uh, to decide whether this was a genocide or not. Uh, and well, well over eighty percent of those people who participated uh, agreed that this was a genocide, which which the uh, activists hailed as a triumph of historical truth that finally we have international scholarly validation that this that this was indeed a genocide but well it isn't really this is not really how you how you build scholarly consensus and i learned while researching it that this was a very very bitter uh bitter memory for those people who had been involved in this process. And it really raises raises important questions about the dividing line between scholarship and activism in a field like genocide studies, which, which is premised on both. So a final question taking off from the book. Um, given how recent Maybe I should change the way I'm going to phrase that. These are contemporary debates and contemporary disputes. Um, do you have some sense of of what the stakes are today and whether this memory is likely or this debate is likely to continue into the near future or whether the form of the debate is likely to change? Um, how, how does this function in 2019? Uh, I'm afraid that we haven't seen the end of this controversy <laughs> by far yet. Uh, it has, over the past two decades, evolved into a really divisive issue in contemporary Greece, uh, where the I have the impression that the general public tend to take for granted that this was really a genocide and that the the activists promoting this narrative and the scholars that are skeptical towards this narrative, they are not really communicating at all with each other. Uh, there There tends to be a generally ugly atmosphere surrounding the ceremonies of public commemoration of the Pontian genocide, in which uh, politicians who have shown up to pay their respects uh, to the Pontian dead have been attacked uh, by members of the congregations, uh, actually physically violently attacked uh, by people who... uh, 
who accused these politicians of being sellouts, national traitors, uh, for not doing more uh, to promote this this narrative of genocide. So it, it's not really an atmosphere that is conducive for a for a proper serious debate about whether this really should be understood as a genocide or something else or how it ought to be remembered or how we can bring about reconciliation and so forth. So in a national Greek context, it continues to matter. Uh, it has also become associated uh, with uh, right-wing extremism in Greece, where the neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn has sort of adopted this genocide narrative as something that they would like to be remembered in lieu of the Holocaust, which, which they, of course, claim is a bogus story. Why should we care about the Jews when we could talk about our own fellow Greeks? So this is where we are at at the present moment. But there are also some promising signs which I address toward the very end of my book, uh, where I have noticed that this tainted association with uh, right-wing extremism and especially Golden Dawn has really become a, a, an embarrassment for some of the Pontian Greek activists, uh, which has sort of forced them to uh, create a distance between their genocide and those who try to use it or manipulate it for their own ends. And this has had the effects that some of the Pontian Greek activists have been interested in creating ties with uh, the Greek Jewish community by acknowledging that the, the Holocaust against the Jews is something that is really important too. And since our own suffering should be understood in this context, it is also important that we Greeks pay attention to what happened to the, to the Jews uh, and other persecuted groups. So here again, we see the process of cosmopolitanization, which admittedly is very much in its infancy, but still. Well, it's a fascinating book, Eric, and I learned a lot from it. And I, I encourage, we, we touched on some of the things you discussed, but there's many, much more in this book that is um, worth reading. So I would encourage the audience to go out and, and get the book and, 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 and read it. Um, we always end, Eric, uh, aside from saying thank you for your time, by, by asking two final questions. And, and one is simple. Um, it's summertime. This is at least in theory, the time where people can take a break and, um, and read something that's not absolutely required for work. Um, maybe you could suggest a book or two or a documentary or something um, that the audience uh, that 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 was that that you found important or meaningful to you while you were um, working on this project that the audience might benefit from reading. Wow, uh, there are really many many books I would like to recommend. Uh, 
uh, but a few of them that comes to mind when you are asking. Uh, it is actually two or three books. Uh, one book that I found uh, very meaningful to read and were valuable to me uh, is a book by Bruce Clark called Twice a Stranger, The Mass Expulsions That Forced forged modern Greece and Turkey. Uh, it's from 2006 uh, at Harvard University Press. So Bruce Clark is not primarily a scholar, but a journalist, a correspondent, a British correspondent in Greece, uh, who 15 years ago wrote this, this amazing book, really, uh, which is uh, an easily accessible scholarly trade book about the aftermath of the exchange of population. Uh, Clark's interest is not primarily in the mass violence or whether it was a genocide or not. He's, he tends to avoid that thorny topic altogether. Uh, his focus is rather on the... Uh, human dimension of this tragedy. It is easy when you are dealing with uh, genocide studies that you get caught up in numbers, how many people were killed, what were the intentions of the perpetrators, and so forth and so forth. And you tend to forget about the ordinary people that lived through these, these events. Uh, so he has... Uh, written a couple of intriguing essays uh, of not only of the descendants of the Greek refugees uh, uh, that came to Greece in the early 1920s, how, how they have sort of dealt with the history of their lost homelands. Uh, he also uh, takes a look at the often forgotten Turkish refugees or the Muslim refugees that were forcibly expelled from Greece and how they reconstructed their lives in Turkey. Uh, I find it a very, it's an easy read. Uh, it's very insightful and above all, it's it's fair-minded, fair and balanced, uh, so to say. So I warmly recommend it. Speaking of Bruce Clark, uh, another book that is sort of in the same vein, uh, but today is more or less forgotten, uh, is actually the first, the very first analysis of the Greco-Turkish conflict ever written. And that is Arnold Toynbee's The Western Question in Greece and Turkey, a study in the context of civilizations that was published a few months before the Asia Minor catastrophe uh, in 1922. Uh, Toynbee was an eminent historian and scholar of the region, but he was also a correspondent of the Manchester Guardian. So the book is based on his dispatches from Asia Minor, from the Greek zone of occupation, uh, back to his editor in Manchester. 
Of course, there's a lot that Toynbee didn't know or couldn't know about at the time of the writing, but he was also a keen observer and, once again, fair-minded. A war crime is a war crime in his eyes, regardless of whether the perpetrators were Turks or Greeks. I think we have a lot to learn from his remarkably unbiased approach to this subject was a source of inspiration for me, actually, when I addressed this thorny topic. And so, then our last question, uh, now, now that I've added those two books to my to-do list for the summer, what are you working on now? Oh, uh, I'm about to embark on a, uh, uh, on a study of uh, Robert College which was an American private institution, teaching institution uh, at Istanbul, uh, founded in 1863 and in, in business until the 1971, I think. Uh, Orhan Pamuk was once a student of that college. <laughs> uh, so it's really a legendary elite school in Turkey where the political elites and the business elites, first of the Ottoman Empire and later of the Republic of Turkey, sent their children in order for them to receive a, a Western education or really an American education. Uh, so I'm looking at the interwar period, uh, the aftermath of these events that I have described in, in the first part of my book. Uh, namely what came after 1923. The, the school, uh, Robert College, uh, had a difficult relation with the, uh, with the prevailing nationalist Kemalist government at Ankara uh, because of its association to this, these Christian minorities, Greeks and Armenians, uh, which the Kemalist government treated as traitors. On the other hand, the Kemalists refrained from expelling this, the Americans at Robert College because, because they wanted to have good relations with the US. Uh, so I am looking at how the educators at Robert College tried to introduce the concept of international education, a sort of educational philosophy that emphasized peace education in the wake of uh, World War I, understanding between nations, etc., uh, etc., et and how they sort of tried to adapt this to this uh, fiercely Turkish nationalist environment in which they were forced to work. So that is what I will be doing. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. Yeah, that's a great project. We chatted about it before we started the interview, and I'm uh, I'm both envious of the the uh, good fortune you had in finding the archives you need, and I'm looking forward to seeing the end result. And I hope sometime um, we'll be able to talk with you again on new books and genocide studies. But for now, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and I know you're moving this summer, so best of luck moving and. Um, living in Copenhagen, which seems to me a, a great place to, uh, to uh, set up a life. And uh, as I say, I hope we'll get a chance to talk with you again. 
Thank you very much. It's been it's been a delight to talk to you. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Herbey about his new book, The Making of the Greek Genocide, Contested Memories of the Ottoman Greek Catastrophe. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I'll interview David Gaunt about his edited volume, Let Them Not Return. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.